As we come to hear God's Word, let's bow and let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask for your help this morning. Lord, we pray you would take the seed of your Word and plant it deep within us and bring fruit for your glory. We pray that you would keep us from being mere hearers of the Word. We pray you'd strengthen us this morning as we hear your word to be doers of your word that are driven by faith in your precious promises. Lord, I pray you'd help me to preach faithfully and clearly that your son Jesus would be exalted. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, a number of years back, I took one of my sons on a trip to the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio. It was a fun trip for me, something I'd wanted to do for a while. And as we walked through, it's really a museum. We walked this museum and looked at a number of exhibits. We made our way back to the main attraction, which is the gallery hall. And at the gallery hall, you've got the players and coaches, but mainly players that made the Hall of Fame and inducted into this place of honor because of excellent play on the field. And as I was walking through that gallery with my son, I was pointing to the statues, the the busts of all the players that I grew up watching as a child, guys he had never heard of, Joe Montana. Jerry Rice, I got to point to them and how I went to watch them as a little boy, and the great running back, Walter Payton, and I was telling him stories, I think he was being nice to me and listening to all the stories I was recounting of excellent play I saw on the field, stories of their their victory and their triumph. Now, there are 354 players presently inducted there into the Hall of Fame. We'll keep waiting for some more Carolina Panthers to be there. I don't know what I've seen this year. We'll see anything anytime soon. But their level of play there in the Hall of Fame, how do you get in? Well, your level of play is held up as an example, an example of, of excellence. Well, why do I share this? Well, compare the Hall of Fame to what many refer to Hebrews chapter 11, a chapter in the New Testament, refer to it as the Hall of Faith. Examples of men and women of God, examples who had faith in the promises of God. Hebrews chapter 11, there are 16 people specifically mentioned by name, men and women there from the Old Testament, who trusted the promises of God. That's why they're held up as examples there. We've been studying through the book of Genesis. We've seen a number of these men and women. We've seen Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham. Sarah, Isaac, and now we make our way to the story of Jacob, the one who started off as a deceiver, a trickster, deceiving his father for a birthright and a blessing. He ended up in the hall of faith, mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, commended for his faith. And of all of the stories that you could think about from the life of Jacob, the one that's recorded in Hebrews chapter 11, is what we just heard read a moment ago from Laura in Genesis 48. Of all the things in his life, actions of faith that could be commended, Hebrews chapter 11, the author of Hebrews wrote down him blessing Ephraim and Manasseh. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 21, we read, by faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph bowing in worship over the head of his staff. This recorded act of faith came not in a moment of physical strength. It came not in a moment that appeared to be bold action, kind of like when Abraham was prepared to sacrifice Isaac. Rather, what we have here with Jacob 
is an old, dying man laying in bed. Yet he's commended for his act of faith, which may just correct us on how we misunderstand faith. You see, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, it helps us understand certainly bold actions and actions like Abraham being prepared to sacrifice Isaac, Noah, who went and gave his life to building an ark because he believed God's promises, certainly actions that would catch our attention, but also something that can be present in a dying, tired man. Hebrews 11:1 defines faith. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen. Faith has an object, God, His promises. Faith trusts and rests in His faithfulness. Well, as we look at Genesis chapter 48 this morning, and we consider this moment that got recorded in Hebrews 11, this moment of Jacob blessing his grandsons. As we look to this story, may we consider what it looks like for us today, the New Testament people of God, the church, to grow in our faith and to grow in resting in Jesus. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 48 if you haven't already done so. Uh, That's on page 41 in the Pew Bible. So if you want to take that Pew Bible and open that up, and if you have come this morning, you don't own a Bible, we want to give that Bible to you as a gift. The best way to stay engaged in the sermon is just to follow along as we make our way through Genesis chapter 48. And the main idea, if you're taking notes this morning, the main idea of Genesis 48 that I want us to see is this. Remember God's faithfulness and look forward in faith that God will keep His promises. Remember God's faithfulness and look forward in faith that God will keep His promises. Well, verse 1 begins with the words, after this, which marks off a new section here in the book of Genesis, and it signals the beginning of the end of the book. So chapters 48, 49 through 50, it's the conclusion of the book of Genesis. So I expect we'll be two more weeks in the book of Genesis, Lord willing, we'll finish up on December 11th. Chapters 48 through 50, the conclusion, and here at the very end, we see Jacob on his deathbed. He's had 17 years with Joseph in Egypt, which we saw last year was just a gift of God's kindness. Joseph was taken away from Jacob when he was 17 years old. They were reunited a number of years later, 22 years later in Egypt, and God was so gracious to give him another 17 years with Joseph. And here on his deathbed in Genesis 48, we see what's going on in his mind. I wonder what will be going on in your mind on your deathbed. Well, here we see what's going through the mind of Jacob. It's the promises of God. Jacob's faith and his hope for the future are seen in this passage. And again, as we consider this passage today, for those who are in Christ, may we be strengthened to look to the future and know that all will be well because God always keeps His promises. As we go through this whole chapter today, I want to break it up into two main parts. So we're going to take this main idea and break it up into two points that help us understand how we walk by faith. 
In verses 1 through 7, we see this first part of how we walk in faith. Look back on God's faithfulness. Look back on God's faithfulness. Well, the scene, Jacob's old, he's ill, he's lying on his deathbed. And when his son Joseph receives word of this, he brings his two sons, Manasseh, who's the oldest, and Ephraim, the the younger one, to be with Jacob. And their presence seems to revive Jacob. He gets a a burst of energy. We see in verse 2 that he summoned his strength and sat up in bed. What, What little strength he had left, their presence seemed to revive him. Now, these are some of Jacob's final words, one of the last conversations he'll have with his beloved son, Joseph. And again, I wonder what each of our last conversations on earth will look like. Well, here we get to see Jacob's. Look at what he wants to talk about, God's faithfulness. One of his last conversations, he wants to point his son to God and his faithfulness. His words to Joseph there in, in verse Three, look back and they recount God's faithfulness to him. What he wants to tell Joseph, God Almighty, he is faithful. Let's look at verses 3 and 4. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. Now, this appearance that Jacob's referring to of God Almighty appearing to him, it it beckons back to Genesis 35 and when he returned to the land of Canaan after spending 20 years outside of the land with Laban. Now, here Jacob retells it that God said, I will make you fruitful. I will multiply you. I will make of you company of peoples. He's, He's emphasizing God's faithfulness. Again, that command going all the way back to Genesis 1, 28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And Genesis 12 and 15, it's given in the form of a promise. And here's Jacob recounting that God is able to fulfill all that he commands. He gives the strength behind all of his promises. In his final words, he's reminding Joseph of God's power and his faithfulness at the end of his life. As he approaches death, He's reflecting on God's promises and how they've become true. Well, Christian, how often do you look back and reflect on God's faithfulness? Certainly, this is a wonderful week to do that as we observe Thanksgiving. And Christians, we should know who it is we give thanks to, to God and all that He's done for us in Christ. But as a regular exercise of the soul, what Peter led us in this morning, a prayer of thanksgiving, these Sunday morning prayers are meant to be a model and an example for us of just what regular prayer should look like in our personal devotional lives, among members of this church, in our homes, among our families, that we would regularly pause and give thanks to God, that we reflect and look back on His faithfulness. You know, Christian, if you look back on your life, you will see God's faithfulness. You will look back and you'll see hardship. You'll see seasons of suffering and sorrow and pain. But you'll also look back and be reminded God proved Himself to be faithful in all of that. He was with you. 
He was providing for you in ways you didn't recognize even at that time. I've referenced this quote a lot. You've heard me say it before. I've heard someone say, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you might recognize three of them. Well, guess what? By reflecting back, you might recognize three more and be reminded of God's goodness and His faithfulness. Well, Christian, how is it that you're reminded of God's faithfulness? I think it starts on Sunday morning. We come together, and God has designed the local church to be this vessel of encouragement and reminder of God's faithfulness. One of the reasons we sing, it's not a cultural thing, it's a command that we find in Colossians chapter 3, to sing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We sing and remind one another of God's faithfulness. That's the kind of songs we sing on Sunday morning. We read Scripture and we pray and we point to God and His faithfulness in Jesus. We sit and we listen to sermons and preaching from God's Word that we would be reminded of God's faithfulness outward from there on Sunday mornings. We're encouraged as we gather on Sunday mornings every day to consider God's faithfulness in our lives. We do that by opening up God's Word so that Sunday morning isn't the only time we open up the Bible, so that Sunday morning and right before meals isn't the only time that we pray. Even in our evangelism, as we proclaim the good news of Jesus to those around us, we are reminded of God's faithfulness to save us, that He has saved us all by His grace and not by our own merit. Well, Christian, look back and and remember what's helped you grow as a Christian. What's helped you live in light of God's faithfulness and keep giving yourself to those things. Well, notice in this moment, that Jacob's looking back on God's faithfulness, but then he's looking forward. So he's kind of looking back and looking forward, which I think is a, a regular posture of the Christian life. We look back and remember God's faithfulness. We look forward in faith. We're reminded that God has been faithful. God is faithful. God will always be faithful. Now, Jacob already has descendants, God's promise starting to be fulfilled, but there are many more descendants yet to come, and the promised land yet to come that would be given as an eternal possession to his descendants. And he will not see the fulfillment of either one of those things as he is on his deathbed. His life is coming to an end. He will not see those things, but he believes God indeed will be faithful to deliver what he's promised. What he does see is part of his future is actually standing right there in front of him, Joseph and his two sons. And in verse 5, he says, your two sons are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. Now, Ephraim and Manasseh, they were born in Egypt. But Jacob's saying they're mine. Joseph was their dad. But Jacob is saying they are mine. What's happening here? is he is adopting his grandsons. That might sound strange to this, but that that, to us, but that's what he means when he says they are mine. It might sound culturally strange to us because Joseph's their dad. He's alive. He's caring for them. He's he's doing well. They're in Joseph's household. So why would Jacob adopt his two grandsons as his own? Well, to make them heirs. So while this practice is not familiar to us culturally, It was a common practice in the ancient Near East to make a grandson an heir. And in order to do that, you would adopt them into your family as your own son, and then they would have a share in your inheritance. Jacob already has 12 sons, and here he adopts two more. Twice he says in verse 5 that 
Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine, like Reuben and Simeon, who were the first and second born of Jacob. Just like them, Ephraim and Manasseh, you will be mine. So they're elevated to be sons on par with Reuben and Simeon. They become heirs of the promise. Now later on, Ephraim and Manasseh, they become two of the most important tribes in the nation of Israel, both having a share in the promised land and forming what would become the northern kingdom of Israel. If you look at the 12 tribes of Israel, you may wonder sometimes, why is there no tribe of of Joseph? Well, his descendants are traced through two tribes, his sons Ephraim and the tribe of Manasseh. Levi, the tribe of priests, they don't get any allotment in the land, so Ephraim and Manasseh, they get that allotment. And we see in verse 6 that Joseph's other children that he had there in Egypt after these two, Jacob directs for those siblings to be counted under these two new tribes. So it seems that in part, Jacob, he's adopting Ephraim and Manasseh, in part due to his love for Joseph's mother, Rachel. In verse 7, he recalls the death of his beloved wife. Rachel was buried in the land of Canaan, even Jacob recounting her death and her burial, a painful moment he was sharing there with Joseph. Even that painful moment reminded him of God's promises. He lost his wife, but God's promises are alive. Now her lineage is extended through Ephraim and Manasseh, being adopted as sons. Jacob's looking back on God's faithfulness in the past. He's looking forward to the future in faith beyond his own death, to the fulfillment of God's promises to his people in the future. And while we see Jacob's faith in this chapter, consider also how we see Jacob's, excuse me, Joseph's faith in God and his promises are also demonstrated. You see, the first act of faith recorded in this chapter is Joseph bringing his two sons to be identified with Israel and not with Egypt. They were born in Egypt, considered Egyptians, born into a family where they would have had favor, a good future set before them. Their father had a really good job. They would inherit what their father had there, the riches and the wealth and fame there in Egypt being connected to him. So there are options here to be identified with Egypt or to be identified with these shepherd people, the people of Israel, held in very low regard, viewed as an abomination in Egypt. Remain in a favored position or be identified with the people of God. And we see the faith here of Joseph that the riches of Egypt cannot compare with the promises of God. An inheritance in the promises of God is seen as far more desirable than an inheritance in Egypt. So Joseph's choice, bring them to Jacob to be identified with the people of Israel, to be identified with the people of God. Jacob says, you're mine, meaning you are of the people of God, the one true God. Their future would be with Israel. You see, God's hand, Jacob and Joseph both believed, God's hand was building something far greater than the hands of the Egyptians could ever build. Joseph believed God. He believed that God had sent him to Egypt not to become one of them, but rather God had sent him to Egypt to prepare the way to save Israel and all of his family from death and famine. God proved himself faithful in the past. 
He will always be faithful. Joseph looked to the future and trusted the promises of God. Oh, brother and sister in the Lord, when you repented of your sin, meaning that you you changed your mind about sin by the grace of God and agreed with Him in His Word that your sin against Him is an offense that is deserving of His judgment and His wrath, when you turned away from that sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ and His death on the cross and His resurrection from the dead to forgive you of your sins and to bring you to God, your identity changed. You were no longer identified with the kingdom of this world, but with the kingdom of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Your baptism upon your profession of faith in Jesus Christ was a public profession of this claim. I'm with Jesus. I belong to Him. My life is not my own. I've been purchased and paid for with a price, with the blood of the Lamb of God, of Jesus Christ. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. I live my life for His glory. I live my life finding joy in Him. The message of the Gospel brings me hope for the future. You see, as Christians, we live identified to Jesus, living in the world, not of the world. And that's the profession of every member of this church. I'm with Jesus. Well, Christian, consider your life and what it looks like every day to live in such a way that says, I'm with Jesus. I live in the world, not of the world. I enjoy God's daily gifts, whatever gifts He's given you, but I don't build my life upon them. I'm with Jesus. My life is built upon Christ. You see, it's a common temptation to try to live in such a manner of Jesus, excuse me, of Jesus plus the promises of this present world. So I want to have Jesus and I want to build my life upon my achievements and my accomplishments. I want to have Jesus and I want to build my life upon wealth. I want to have Jesus and I want to live for this present world. And to that, Jesus says no one can serve two masters. You will hate the one and love the other. For those who are in Christ, let's turn away from that temptation. Let's remember that by faith, we continue to live as those who are with Jesus. Our promises, our trust rather, is not in the promises of this present world, but what it means to live by faith, we put our trust in the promises of God. We keep repenting and keep believing all by His grace. Well, the second part of this passage in verses 8 through 22, we see another way that we live by faith. Verses 8 through 22, look forward in faith that God will keep His promises. Look forward in faith that God will keep His promises. Well, having to clear that Ephraim and Manasseh are mine, this section gives details of the outworking of this adoption and Jacob blessing the boys as his sons. Now, what is this blessing? You say a blessing before your your meal. You may often bless someone by, by praying for them or letting them know that you're praying for them. If you're a parent, you may often bless your kids by praying and asking God to work in their life. So a blessing, simply put, is, is a prayer that's addressed to God, but it functions differently in the life of Jacob. He was elect of God, chosen to be Israel, the one, the family through whom God would work to bring redemption, ultimately to bring the Messiah, Jesus, down to earth. And so this, this blessing, it's a prayer that's addressed to God, but it, it shaped the future of the one blessed in such a way 
that it served as a, a prophetic kind of blessing. This blessing, it's connected to God's covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So this is like a prophetic revelation from God to Jacob about the future of the family of Israel. Now, it may seem surprising in verse 8 that Jacob begins by asking, who are these? But we see later in verse 10 that he's, he's blind. His eyes were dim with age. He could not see. So Joseph steps up and says, these are my sons that God has given me here. Indeed, children are a gift from the Lord. And with that, Jacob wants them to be brought near. Some scholars point to this as like a, a formal adoption type of process. Now, look at verse 11. We see this sweet moment marked off of enjoying God's kindness. In verse 11, Jacob says to Joseph there, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. For 22 years, Jacob thought his son was dead. Faith is different from optimism. Faith is connected to the promises of God. That's what faith is. It's not just like closing your eyes and being really optimistic about the future. Now, now faith should breed optimism, a well-found optimism, meaning God is faithful and therefore the future is bright. But Jacob had no reason to think that he would ever see his son again. He thought his son was dead. He thought he'd never see Joseph's face. He's recounting God's kindness. I never expected to see you again. And here you are, and here are my grandsons. And on his deathbed, he gets to be with them. God is so kind. God is so good to him. As he brings the boys to be blessed by Jacob, Joseph, he positions his two sons strategically in their birth order, placing the firstborn Manasseh to Jacob's right hand in a position that would receive the greater blessing of the firstborn. Now, they're both going to receive a blessing. Both of them will become sons. Both of them will become heirs to the promise. But the greater blessing was expected by Joseph to go to the oldest, to Manasseh. The greatest blessing would be marked by the right hand. The right hand is the place of honor. It's a place of, of blessing, and that's why Joseph places him there. But look at what happens in verse 14. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. Jacob, he crossed his hands. He blessed the younger over the older. Now, we'll come back to that in a moment. But remember, both boys get blessed as sons and heirs. Let's look at this blessing starting in verse 15. Jacob calls on God, invoking his name in a threefold manner here. And each way he speaks of God, each way he addresses God, recounts God's faithful dealings with him in the past. First, he says, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. So he calls on the God who's in covenant relationship with his fathers. Next, he calls on the God who's been my shepherd all my life long to this day. He's recounting God's faithful deal and that God was a, a faithful shepherd who led him and protected him and even rescued him from evil, which finally in verse 16, he speaks to the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Now, angel there refers to the angel of the Lord. An angel of the Lord, the Lord himself, this visible manifestation of the Trinity. He's saying, the Lord redeemed me from all evil. He rescued me 
from all evil. And now, having called upon this God who is so faithful, he gets to the blessing for the future. This same God who's been faithful to Jacob, may he bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on. And the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac. And let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. The promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that God would make them into a multitude that would bless the nations. Well, now Manasseh and Ephraim, they share in that blessing. Now, they both get the blessing, but remember, Jacob had his right hand on Ephraim. The greater blessing goes to the younger over the older. And when Joseph realizes this, look at verse 17. He's unhappy. He's, he's displeased. He tries to correct the situation and tries to move Jacob's hand back over the way he thought it should go. You see, blessing the younger over the older, if you remember, that's what Jacob's father, Isaac, had done with him. The difference back then, and that they both were blind, right? But the difference back then is that he deceived his father into blessing him. There was trickery getting him to bless him rather than Esau. Now, even though Jacob is himself now blind. He's not making a mistake. There's no trickery or deception involved here. He knows who it is that he is blessing. The greater blessing coming from God to Jacob will go to the younger son, Ephraim. Why is this important? Well, Joseph, he's thinking in a way that's natural, in a way that really is according to the pattern of the world, assuming the blessing should go to the oldest son. Yet the theme already established throughout the book of Genesis is that the blessing does not follow the natural and cultural line of the firstborn. God is not bound to follow the ways of this world. In fact, God often works in ways that make this world puzzle, mysterious ways. The blessing, simply put, was a gift, not a right. We saw this when God was pleased, not with Cain, but with his younger brother Abel. The blessing went not to Ishmael, but the younger brother Isaac, not to Esau, but to the younger brother Jacob. The pattern has been set in Genesis. This blessing, not based on birth status, but based entirely on the grace of God. God's ways, brother and sister, are not our ways. His way is that he chooses what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chooses what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chooses what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Grace boast of God, of His loving kindness. And so it is with our calling, brothers and sisters, God's choice is all of grace. His election of you as a child of God leaves no room in your life for boasting. That's good news because that means we're freed up to thank Him. We are freed up to spend our entire life marveling at the grace of God and His kindness to us. You may never have expected for your life to look like it does now, meaning God's been so kind and so good to you. I can think, like Jacob, I, I never expected this. I drove up and down these streets as a high schooler going to high school 
just down the road. As a knucklehead senior in high school, I never expected God would use this building, which I drove by quite often, doing things, sadly, that dishonored God. I never expected he'd have me here, standing up preaching on a Sunday morning. It still feels a little weird, honestly. It does. Maybe there's things in your life you never expected, that your marriage isn't perfect, but God's grace is all over it. Your family's not perfect. God's grace is all over it. Your life right now, you're not boasting in your achievements and your accomplishments. Maybe at one point in your life, you looked forward and had this big picture of your life, and God's done something so different, and you're so thankful for it, because God's ways are better than your ways. You see, God's election in Christ, being all of grace, frees us us up to boast in Him, not to boast in ourselves, and therefore, we're freed up to trust Him. The same God who saved us is the God who is sanctifying us today, and that God who is sanctifying us today by the presence of the Spirit of Christ in us is preparing for us that eternal home with Him forever, joy unending, final salvation, free from the presence and the power of sin forever. Now, once this blessing was given, it could not be undone. Jacob knew he was blessing. In verse 19, his father refused and said, I know my son. I know, which is a statement of confidence in God. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. As Jacob faced death, he looked to the future in faith, confident that God was bringing his family back to the land of Canaan, just as he had promised. He will not be with them, but God will be. And that gave him confidence and hope for the future. God will bring them back to the land of Canaan. Verse 21, then Israel said to Joseph, behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. As a final gift to his beloved son, Joseph, he grants him this mountain slope. That seems like an odd way to end, but track with me here. He grants them this mountain slope, which is inside the promised land of of Canaan. Most likely, this slope is in a place called Shechem, a parting gift as if to say, look to the promise, my son. Look beyond Egypt. This is not your home. Many years later, Joseph would go to that place in Shechem. Not alive in the flesh, his bones eventually carried out of Egypt, and Joshua would be the one to bury his bones there by that mountain slope in Shechem. Well, after looking at this chapter, chapter 48, again, why would this scene make Hebrews chapter 11? What is it about this action that would stand out as noteworthy? And Hebrews 11 is meant to be instructive to Christians, hey, live in this manner. So what are we supposed to take from this story of Joseph, of Jacob blessing Joseph's sons? Again, the act here recorded is of a dying man in his bed giving a blessing that might not initially strike us as courageous as a bold type of act. He's in bed. 
But let's consider the way the writer of Hebrews interprets this. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13. Here's the interpretation. These all died in faith, not having received things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Jacob was looking to heaven. He was looking to a a better country, a better place, a promise of God. His act of faith that gets recorded came in his dying moment when he was old and physically weak, but spiritually strengthened. And what brought him strength on his deathbed is that he looked forward in faith to the promises of God. His act of blessing, Ephraim and Manasseh, revealed his faith and his hope for the future. He didn't view his death as the end of God's promises. Rather, he talked about what God would certainly do in the future. He died without seeing the promises fulfilled in their fullness, but he did not die denying these promises. He spoke about the future with confidence and in faith, convinced that God would keep his promises. As he faced his death, he trusted that God had a place for him in heaven. Simply put, brother and sister, faith trusts God for the future. That's what it is. It trusts God for the future. And the greatest act of faith for many of you very well might come like Jacob on your deathbed, death on the horizon, looking to the world that is yet to come. No fear in death, but hope in what is yet to come. You see, faith trusts God that he, His promises He's made, He will certainly keep. To live by faith means that we believe God's Word, that we base our future upon what is written in His Word. Well, Christian, do you live increasingly like this? Is your view of the future increasingly shaped by the Word of God? That's what it means to grow in faith. It means to grow in trusting. You see, don't make the mistake of confusing what faith is. Sometimes we may wrongly think like faith and those people in Hebrews chapter 11. Well, well, faith refers to a really strong person. You see, faith has an object. And so a strong faith points not so much to a strong person, but to a strong promise. A strong promise of God that you cling to, that you hold on to. Sometimes we may wrongly think, well, that's a really strong person. They're confident. They're bold. They're a risk taker. Friends, I'm here to tell you this city is full of bold risk takers that are far from Jesus. Being a bold risk taker does not mean that you have faith. What it means to have faith is that I cling to the promises of God. That's all I've God. I enjoy all of the daily gifts God gives me, but what I put my faith in is God and in His promises. I turn away from the promises of this passing present world. I look away from this city to the city that is yet to come, a a heavenly city where Christ reigns eternal. Don't make the mistake of confusing what faith is. You see, faith is always in something 
or someone. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I want to contend you have faith in something. You have faith in someone. Often when I'm talking with my unbelieving family members or friends and I ask them a simple question like, well, what do you think happens after you die? They usually have an answer. It's usually something like, I don't know, or I think I'm going to heaven. And my next question is, who told you that? Like, where are you getting that from? Because as a Christian, I find faith in God's Word. Faith isn't closing my eyes and trying to be optimistic about the future and just hoping things will turn out well. Faith is believing God's promises, looking to the future and believing all will end up well because God is faithful to His promises. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want to ask you the question. I'm so glad that you're here, but I want to ask you this question. How can you have hope as you face your death? Death is certain. Life is brief. It may be shorter than you think it is. How can you have hope as you face your own death? And we would submit to you, the only way you can have hope is to trust the one who died on the cross to pay for sin and rose to new life, to trust the new one who extends new life and forgiveness of sins, free righteousness before God, and everlasting salvation in eternity with God. Trust that one. His name is Jesus. Put your hope in Him. Have your life changed and shaped by Him, and your outlook on the future will be entirely different because your faith will rest in Jesus. My faith has found a resting place as a Christian. It's found in Jesus. Faith means I rest and I trust in Him. Faith means the greatest work that needs to happen has already been accomplished at the cross and the empty tomb. There is no greater work left to be done. We simply rest and trust in Him that we will be forgiven of our sin against God and united to Him forever. Christian, I wonder how you seeing your life by faith in Jesus, I wonder how that might change your perspective of the future. I wonder how it might change what you worry about, what you're anxious over. If we're honest about our worries, it's that we look to the future and we imagine a future where God's not going to be gracious. We wrongly imagine a future that God's not going to be good to us. We wrongly fear that God somehow will leave us to ourselves. And what do we do? We face that moment. I think we do like Jacob. We look back. We remember God's faithfulness. We look all the way back to the cross and to the empty tomb and filled with hope. We look forward to the future in faith. God has always been faithful. God is faithful. God will always be faithful. And our faith in the future is found in Jesus. Christian, would you pray that God would grow you in your faith this week? Would you pray that God would help you to look back and to look forward, trusting Him? We're going to close our time out this morning, sing a song that looks forward in faith and hope in Jesus. It's a song called Almost Home. It acknowledges the truth that we find in the Bible, that this life is just a vapor. We're almost home. That sun is setting yonder. We're almost home. Take courage, for this darkness shall break to dawn. Oh, lift your eyes, we're almost home. Almost home, we're almost home. So press on toward that blessed shore. Oh, praise the Lord, 
we're almost home. Let's pray. Father, may that cry of faith be true in our hearts this morning, that our hope is not in ourselves and in this present world. Lord, may we be reminded this life is just a vapor, that our faith is in Jesus who has gone to prepare a place for us, a place that that we would not believe, a place we could not imagine, a place where we will know your eternal presence and joy in you forever. And Lord, we pray that through what we've heard in your word this morning, that you would grow us in faith, grow us in godliness, help us to trust you more, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.